much for coming. I'm really, really excited. I invited tonight three amazing authors. One of them who I think is going to be joining us soon had a family emergency. Um, authors that I, are friends, but also authors that I admire as writers so much. And they all have these new fantastic books that are going to be great for the summer and great for book clubs. Um, so I'm going to jump in and do brief intros of, of, of the three. And like I said, we're waiting for Piper, but we'll see how she can make it. Um, the first is, this is to celebrate Piper Hughley's novel, By Her Own Design, launches tomorrow. And it's amazing. And um, she's the, yeah, not, uh, there, the yes, not the final cover. Final cover's on my website. Um, she's the author of the Home to Milford College and the Migrations of the Heart series. She's a multiple-time Golden Heart finalist. She blogs about the history about her novels on her website. And she lives in Atlanta with her husband and son. Her, Like I said, her latest novel releases tomorrow. Um, Amy K. Runyon. Yay, Amy. She writes to celebrate history's unsung heroes. She's been honored as a Historical Novel Society Editor's Choice Selection, as a three-time finalist for the Colorado Book Awards, and as a nominee for the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writer of the Year. Amy is, an active, is active as an educator and speaker in the writing community and beyond. She lives in Colorado with her husband and two children, and her latest amazing novel is The School for German Brides. Also loved. Libby Grant. Hello, Libby. Thank you for coming. Hi. Has been passionate about American history since the early days of the Mormon Church from a young age. She was raised in the Latter-day Saint faith and has deep roots in Mormon culture, She's no although she's no longer a practicing member. Under her pen name, Olivia Hawker, she's a Washington Post best-selling author and a finalist for the Washington State Book Award and the Willow Literary Award for Historical Fiction. She lives in the San Juan Islands and with her husband, Paul. Her latest fabulous novel is The Prophet's Wife. So welcome, ladies, and we will see if, if Piper can can join us. Just to give you a little background on Piper's book before I ask Libby and Amy to jump in, um, it's an, it's really an astonishing story. It's one of those stories that I as when I read it, I was like, I can't believe I've never heard of this woman. So it, it's a based on the true story of Anne Lowe. She was a black woman, granddaughter of slaves, and she overcame just incredible odds to become an elite fashion designer from the 20s to the 60s and actually designed Jackie Kennedy Onassis's dress and um, and then had to redesign it and remake it after it was ruined a week before the wedding. And if you look up her designs, they're exquisite. I had to go on a deep dive and her story is just like, it's just an incredible American story that's been forgotten by history. So I'm really excited for Piper. I hope she can jump on. But if if not, you all have to check out by her, her own design and, and definitely pre-order it before it launches tomorrow. Now, um, I want to jump in with Libby. The Prophet's Wife just came out recently, and it's the just the fascinating tale of the or, origins of the Mormon Church told from the perspective of Emma Smith, the wife of Joseph Smith. So. Obviously, you have Mormon roots, Libby, and tell us more about the premise and what made you to decide to write a book from Emma Smith's perspective. Um, well, the premise is uh, kind of, as you described, it just sort of examines this, this marriage or this relationship between two very interesting people from uh, American history. And as for what made me want to write about it, I don't even, I'm not even sure. <laughs> I started working on the book like nine years ago. I oh, worked wow. on it for about seven years before I actually sold the manuscript. Um, 
So I, I don't even think I can really remember just somewhere along the way, the idea popped into my head that I should write a novel about the founding of the LDS church. And then as I started working on it more, I realized it really needed to be told from Emma's perspective because she had such an interesting view on what all was going on. So yes, that's what yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's so well done and so fascinating. I, I've been watching Under the Banner of Heaven on HBO and they have flashbacks to Emma Smith. Um, and it, yeah, I, I've been thinking about it a lot because I've been watching that. Yeah, um, yeah. It's been good so, timing for me. <laughs> such good timing, exactly. It's a beautiful book. Thank you. And Amy has also written a beautiful, heart-wrenching book called The School for German Brides. This is another, Let you know, you think like there's a lot of World War II. This is another very, I had no idea about these schools for um, these Reich's bride schools that, that are that are, you know, that you have two fictional protagonists, but they're based on the experiences of young German women growing up during the war. So tell mm -hmm. me, I, I know that you discovered this story of these bride schools while you were researching another book. And just tell me about the, about the premise the, across the winding river. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> tell me about the premise of this story, because it, again, it's another one that I'm like, what is going on here? I can't believe it. Yeah. So the Weichbrauchtschule um, is, were real places where, because, you know, to, to give a background to the history, um, in the 1920s, um, after World War I, there was a horrible infant mortality rate in Germany. And so they created Mutterschule, mother schools. And those had great success rate in helping women, you know, raise their children to survive infancy, which, you know, even those that, you know, there's eugenics behind it, sure. But, you know, it's a good goal, you know, regardless. I mean, we want babies to survive. So they figured, hey, we have these women, we're a society that's moving toward women getting emancipated and going to work and doing all these things we don't like. Let's have these schools that get women out of these office jobs. And, you know, they take them six weeks so they can get away from the struggles of office life and relax and reconnect with their proper duty, which was Kinder Kirche Kirche, which is children, kitchen, church. And that's what they wanted them to focus on um, and, and with a, a heavy dose of Nazi indoctrination. So it was like home ec on steroids with a lot of propaganda and brainwashing involved. And I read about them while I was researching Nazi wedding traditions because I knew there had to be some strange ones for <laughs> across the winding river. And I read that this was a real place and the most nefarious of which was on Schwanenwinde Island, which is near Berlin. And it's literally a villa across the street from where the final solution, which was to execute all the Jew, Jew, Jewish people in concentration camps and in, under Jewish influence was um, decided on in January of 1942. So you had these women who were being trained to cook and clean and raise children and do all these sorts of things that we view as wholesome and nurturing and good right across the street from where these men were making these heinous decisions. I'm like, that's a book. That's yeah, a book and yeah. I need to write it. So unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah that, again, it was one of those. I'm like, I can't, I can't believe I had never heard of it before. Yeah. Um, yeah and that was I, got, I got to blurb it and oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, I got to blurb uh, the school for German brides and it was, it's fantastic. And um, I'm still mad about something that happens in it, which I won't say, cause I don't want it to be a spoiler, but still <laughs> once in a while, I'll just think of it and be like, ah, oh, oh. <laughs> so. 
Well, I um, think if you read a, a you know a book like that and you're not mad, you're not paying attention. And it was yes. meant to be uncomfortable and harsh, and you know, it, and it was written during you know the height of our lockdown. So yeah. you know, it was it was a harsh book to write. And I had, I mean, I took all that angst about everything that was happening and tried to cram it into the book. Well, you did a, <laughs> you did a good job. You did. It worked totally. <laughs> um, so tell me, you know. I want to talk about people are always interested in, in the research involved in stories and how, you know, historical fiction, obviously is research is a jumping off point. What is your research process? Um, do you start, like, do you do a bunch up front and then start writing? Are you doing it as you go? Is it a little bit of both? Um, Libby, if you want to start, I'd love to hear. Um, I tend to, I tend to, do enough reading about like the setting, um, especially the political and social sort of landscape that my character is going to be moving through. Um, I researched that really intensively to start with. And then once I can really clearly see my character like doing their thing in, in that world, then I actually stop researching because as we all know, it's pretty easy to just get like sucked into it and you never oh, ever yeah. stop and you never get the book written. <laughs> so I, I kind of have this moment where like if I can sort of see everything playing out in my head and I understand how my character responds to all this stuff I'm reading about, then I know it's time to stop researching and start writing. And then like, as I'm writing, if I need to pick up little details here and there, I can, you know, hit pause and, and like Google it really quick and make sure it's accurate and then go back to the writing. But yeah, I don't, I don't do um, an excessive amount of research up front. I feel like I do just enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I try to do the same thing. Um, I will read a couple of really good secondary sources or like for gir girls uh, on the line, I had like a diary from two of the women who served as hello girls so i'm like oh, yeah wow. i'm gonna read all that and yeah. so i read that and i read a wonderful um a secondary piece called the hello girls by elizabeth cobb is a kind of the definitive book and i figured after reading that book and taking some notes and reading those two diaries everything else i needed to fill in was like detail work and i try because momentum especially being a busy mother etc momentum is my friend and so um, I just try to keep going and then take notes, like research this and then move on <laughs> and um, then go back and like draft two to fill in any of the blanks. Yes. Yeah. And I, I did the same. Like, I feel like a bit, we're talking about historical research. Welcome, Piper. I'll, I'm going to introduce you again in just a sec. Um, I, I kind of like to have a baseline. And then, um, oh, oh, you're unmuted now. Awesome. And, uh, and then, and then kind of dive in or otherwise I'll be researching for years. Um, yep. Piper, welcome. I'm so glad you made it. Yay. I do um, at, a, at a proper clip and everything. So oh, I'll yes. Excellent. All right. Well, well, cheers. Cause your launch day is tomorrow and Thank you. I'm glad you were able to make it. And, um, we, we talked at the beginning about by her own design, but I would just love to hear from your perspective, like the history of AMLO, why you decided to write this novel at this time in your life and, 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 um, and just more about this fascinating woman in history. Well, thank you, Jane. And it's good to see you guys um, here on Zoom. Uh, I wrote this book because um, publishing wanted it. So, you know. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. That was a good answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> When they're asking for it, you know, hey, somebody's got to step to the plate. Yeah, um, my editor, as those of you all know, um, that I'm pretty active on Twitter, she likes to tweet out her um, 
uh, what's it, MSWL hashtag. Oh, manuscript, uh, manuscripts. I yeah. like manuscript wish list. Yeah. yeah I yeah. don't know if she's officially registered in that thing or not, but she does like to tweet her requests. And that, and that one day she happened to tweet uh, a retweet what somebody tweeted about Anne Lowe. And I'd always known in the back of my mind, like as a sort of a, not necessarily black history factoid, because I think the black history factoids are stuff that people generally know, but I right. knew that this was a case, but I'd never investigated it. So then I looked into it. And when I looked into it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's a story. Because as you guys know well, when you look at a subject, um, it's not necessarily so that their life would make for a great uh, novel. Um, you know, there's some other ones that I've looked at and it's like, I, I don't see it. And so right, that's right. for somebody else to do, you know, in terms of that. But that wasn't the case for Anne Lowe. Um, so yeah, once she saw it, I wrote uh, the prologue. It was the very first thing that I wrote um, because it occurred to me immediately in my nerdy mind uh, that I knew that the day that she had died was the day after Charles and Diana had gotten engaged. Oh, I read that in your notes. Yeah. yeah so I was like, yeah, I knew that. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I have no idea if she was conscious or whatever, but what if that was the thing, you know, it just seemed to uh, give me a good place to start in terms of thinking about someone who had uh, done one of the most photographed wedding dresses in history, and that's true, um, and managed to have regrets about it in some way, looking back at the experience. So that's yeah. how I got started. Amazing. Amazing. And I was, you know, with all three of your books, I did a deep dive because, and that's, I think that's the best, you know, it's such a, it's a great story when you start deep diving into the research afterwards. And I encourage everyone to look at the designs that Anne Lowe's designs, because they're just, they're so whimsical and stunning and different. Like the, she just had her own flair that, and, and that's another reason that I'm like, I, I can't believe I'd never heard of this woman before. And so I, I think it's just so wonderful that this story is coming out tomorrow. It's going to be, it's going to be huge. It's <laughs> so good. I love this book so much. I blurbed this one too. And I'm usually a pretty slow reader, but I read this one in like three or so four good. hours. I couldn't stop. <laughs> yeah, I like, <laughs> it was this really is good. one. Yeah, this is one I blew through in two days. I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah, and I so, mean, it's so good. gripping. It's so gripping. Yeah. So and, gripping. Yeah, and, and true. Just, yeah. Well, you know, um, yeah. I remember there's a quote that uh, that somebody said. Uh, they were asking, um, "Well, what do you think about Einstein's theory of relativity?" To some famous scientist, and his response was, "What concerns me more is that there's some brilliant scientist who's working in a factory somewhere in the middle of nowhere who will never, whose genius will never be given to the world." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that so much could have been her. Mm -hmm. And you know, mm -hmm. she she was such a prodigy. Mm -hmm. It's not that yep. she was just a great, yeah. a good designer. She True. was a prodigy and so wonderful yeah. at what she did. You know, it's an example of genius and how fortunate it is for humankind that she didn't get lost in the shuffle because it could have happened yeah. so easily. I mean, the deck was so stacked against her from the time she was born. Um, yeah. You know, so it wasn't just, you know, a usual tale of woe at all. So no. read this book. <laughs> yes, read the book. Launches tomorrow. <laughs> um, so I have a question. This one's for Piper and Libby. 
Um, do you have you wondered if one if you, one of your historical characters came back to life and read your novel, what would they think of their of your portrait of them? Uh, <laughs> you go first, Piper. <laughs> Are you sure? I might, I might have like a little insight to that because since I've um, written the novel, um, the family has come forward. Oh wow! Yes. What? Yes, I got a little message on my Instagram one night um and it was their representative oh wow wanted me he wanted to talk to me and so I connected with her and she represents Andla's great granddaughter that is Audrey's daughter wow um and uh you know she's like oh we're not out here to get you or anything like that and just wanted to you know say uh congratulations and she's been kind of helping me brainstorm uh, some ways to get in other because the reason why they have representation I think is because they've noticed over the past two years that there's been an increase in terms of some of the articles and everything oh uh, the yeah zeitgeist of Anlo so um and, and her name's Linda Linda had um you know maybe not the sense of really who to contact but she knew she needed somebody and reached out to Sharon, this is the, the woman from uh, her agency that, that they represent her, and uh, to begin to think about what might be done in terms of getting Ann Lowe's name and uh, her accomplishments across to the world. Um, so uh, as has been told to me, Linda's very pleased in terms uh, of this. And you know, it's like this whole aspect in terms of if somebody's going to do it, who but me, somebody like me could do it. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, and it's, it's kind of a, a, a threat kind of thing because there is the um, self-published biography that's out, that's on Amazon, that uh, mm -hmm. sort of did give me a nudge in terms of doing it because when she first published that in 2016, one of the things she said was that she wanted to write a historical fiction mm -hmm. about Anlo, but didn't feel that she could talk about the life of a black woman because she was a southern white woman oh okay and I was like oh yeah that's true so this is me so uh, <laughs> so, so has but, the family has the family read the book or so I, she knows about it okay she's, she's aware of it, it. she's aware of it and the cool thing is let's say is wanting to keep those channels open because they showed me pictures of Arthur oh wow holding Audrey Oh, amazing. There are letters and things. Audrey herself only died in 2017. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And so Margaret Powell, the textile scholar that I um, dedicated the book to, a young Black woman who was working on both the, bi the comprehensive scholarly biography of Ian Lowe, as well as the, um, uh, the ex exhibit that'll be in uh, Delaware next year. Uh, she uh, died when she was 38 years old of breast cancer. Oh, geez. And that's why I dedicated the book to her. It's like a lot of her thesis gave me, you know, leads, et cetera, yeah. in terms of what she did. But Margaret and Audrey had recorded a number of interviews with one another. And so I want access to that. I'm not about to shake the family. <laughs> no, not at all. Very supportive. So. Um, Excellent. That's my input. So, Libby, you've got plenty of time. Uh, uh, it's coming back. 
There I am. There you go. It happens like once a, once a webinar, and my husband's like, just breathe. It's going to be <laughs> Sorry, I'm back. It was like, hey, sometimes you were getting ready for another question. Oh. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. What would Emma Hale Smith think of my book? I don't, I don't know. It's so hard. One of the challenging things about writing from her perspective is that she didn't really leave very much behind that indicated her real thoughts and feelings about anything. Um, very, very few items, very few letters or like journal entries or anything like that. I mostly had to go off of what other people said she said in, in their okay. own journals and, and whatnot, um, which is, you know, an unreliable source. Who knows if people were just making up rumors or saying, you know, propagating a narrative that, that uh, supported their religious experience, but wasn't necessarily authentic to her real feelings. Um, so I don't know. She's Emma is kind of an enigma. In fact, her biography, the biography about her is called Mormon Enigma. Um, because there's just there's so little to help. <laughs> I was hoping that could be my superhero name. That's good. There's just like there's so little that can that can be discerned about her real feelings about things. I had to infer a lot. And who knows if I was on the mark or just like way off. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, I guess that. That's an interesting point because there's some aspects of Anne's stuff, but that I was on the mark about, and then like what happened to her second husband. Oh yeah, that was a whole different thing because the family, of course, is descended from her first husband, so they have particular feelings about the second husband being like uh, kind of jerk mode, you know, kind of do, you know, so. Well, after reading your novel, I have particular feelings about personally. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. But also, I don't know if you guys saw this or not, and I'm, you know, intend to make it more highlight of my uh, promo um, tomorrow, is that the Mike Douglas interview that I referred to in the novel was uh, discovered, and it was right where I thought it was going to be. What? You know, I like to say, it's in Philadelphia someplace. Somebody go. <laughs> so it's been discovered and they put it on YouTube. Oh, and, no way. Yeah. And it's Anne Lowe herself. Oh, that's amazing. In this 20 minute interview, um, I don't know y'all old enough to murder Mike Douglas show, but I do because it was like on at the babysitter's house when I had to go there after school. And I always wanted her to put on some cartoons. I said, that dude is boring. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I remember. But then meanwhile, I'm like trying to find this, you know, 20 minute uh, interview from 1964 with her talking and it has a fashion show in it. You know, it's black oh, wow. and white, so they have to describe the color to you, <laughs> black and white. But um, some of the things that she had said um, in terms of that, I made it better than what it actually was in two instances of racism uh, that she faced. And it probably was for the better that what I wrote was better than what she had actually endured. Um, in terms of the book because I think there's a lot in the book already yeah that if I had written those two incidents exactly as they happened it might have been real downer because one of the things that my editor insisted upon was that there'd be an ending kind of hope or whatever so I always knew where that was going to end uh for her 
in terms of that. But yeah, really fascinating lady. As I was thought she would put me in the mind of my uh, grandmother, who uh, my family uh, originates in Alabama from like two counties away. There in eastern Alabama. There's oh, wow. a huge, a Alabama. Like I said, there's like two counties over from Clayton where she was born and all of that. So yeah, I just, I knew exactly because people asked a question about uh it's writing historical fiction of course in terms of the research and uh libby and amy i think jane you've been to hns before right yes yeah we were just yeah. talking about it yeah 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 you know there was a research you know, <laughs> like black women are not sitting down creating primary and secondary resources right that's the thing so too much too busy living Right. You know, yeah. That's what yeah. said to me, you know, oh, I wish she had left behind a diary. She didn't want to do anything else but make those dresses. That's the whole point <laughs> of the novel. You know, she to the point where she was, you know, willing to take less money for doing so because she loved it so. Um, which yeah. is something else she talks about on the Mike Douglas show. So um yeah, they don't have no time for that. So you have to think about the research in alternate ways and creative ways, which comes to in terms of the dresses, in terms of what does that tell you? How much craft is she putting into them? Um, why is she doing it? What does she have to say about it? That's all the kind of stuff that um, I, you know, you have to go on when you're dealing with a person from a marginalized, like you're saying, Libby, Emma's not sitting around writing down you know what it is that she thought so, right, because she's taught from the beginning that what she thinks and feels of it is uh, not any importance to anyone yeah, right yeah, right yeah, yeah. So, she'd probably be baffled like you know we asked the question what would your character think and would probably you know wouldn't be so shocked that somebody written a book about her because she knew she was awesome right 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 exactly but would be like <laughs> right. what Right, right. Look about me. Somebody knows my name. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's totally that women were not considered of any importance. So you know, even like in anything that anyone does, you know, to have to continuously um, fight against, you know, that societal um, standard that says what you think and feel is not of any importance. Like you said, Amy, you know, for Anne to have to continuously to have persisted in terms of what it was that she was doing, it's really quite, it's really quite remarkable. Because and, and I think oh, yeah. somebody could just sit down and be like, well, I'll just go back somewhere and have a bunch of babies. And that'll be, yeah. you know. <laughs> right, right. That actually brings me to one of my other questions. Uh, you were talking about, like, all of you talked a little bit about like having to fill in the blanks. Of course, I'm, I'm a nerd. So I read all of your author's notes again today. I read them when I first read the book. I read them again. And, um, for me too, Jane. I don't blame you. I love it. I love it. love the sources. I was watching the YouTube video about Anne loaded it. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, the thing is like, you know, we have, it's, this is not, you know, this is not a fact-based, I mean, it's a fact-based story, but it's fiction. At the end of the day, it's a story. It's a narrative arc, and you have to fill in the blanks, and it's, how do you do that, and where do you, where do you give yourself permission to do that, and where do you draw the line? Like, how do you find that balance? Whoever wants to take it first, just. You know, for me, because I write almost exclusively um, fictional characters, it makes it easier, because my goal is to take a situation like Russian female fighter pilots or the bride schools or the telephone operators in World War One or 
the immigrants from France to Canada in the 1600s. And I take a scenario and I try to just convey the reality of what these women were going through with you know this character who is meant to be an amalgamation of the feminine experience um, or characters who are an amalgamation. Because you know, if I were to tell um, from like my, my debut novel, Promise of the Crown, I didn't want to tell the story of one woman's experience crossing from France to Canada. I wanted to tell several. And so I had three main heroines, but they're all kind of representative. They're archetypes of the types of women who left behind everything. And for German brides, you know, uh, Hannah, who is the one that, you know, actually attends the actual bride school is, you know, she's kind of the quintessential archetypal ideal German bride who is the counterpoint to Tilda, who's a Jewish German bride who has a very different experience. So, yeah, and so that's what I try to do is I, you know, I, I try to be faithful to actual events and situations, but I give myself uh, fictional characters to give myself the artistic license to be able to show the event and the history with my own, and you see cameos from real people um, here and there, but usually it's 100% fictional characters. Got it. Yeah, that, I get that. And now, and you both wrote real characters in history. So how is that different for you in terms of your experience writing? Um, I, I try really hard to stick to actual events because I do work with, with real people from history so often. Um, I should say at least, at least when I work with a known figure from history, I try really hard to stick to real historical events. If it's just like my own family members or something, then whatever, I'll make up whatever I need to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, like, especially in the case of the prophet's wife, also because I was dealing with, you know, a religion, like people take that very seriously. Some people do. <laughs> you know? it, it means a lot to certain people, including, you know, some of my family members and stuff. So I tried really hard to stick to um, actual events as much as possible and then construct an interesting narrative around what really happened. Um, it's challenging though, like it's really hard. I had to tweak a couple things here and there. Like I gave Emma this sort of extramarital love interest um, because it suited the story, but there's no actual historical you know, basis for that, so. You know, sometimes you got to throw in a little bit of fun stuff. Just <laughs> a, little bit of, a little bit of spice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I know, at least for me, um, the facts are like these uh, tent poles. And then I'm like, the fiction is what connects them. Um, and at least in terms of Anlo's childhood, I felt as if, um, given my grandmother my great-grandmother, you know, had, um, well, it's my great-grandmother, who's actually her contemporary, um, that uh, hearing those family stories about what their childhoods were like uh, as I had grown up, you know, was something that uh, helped, um, as well as my uh, study of Zora Neale Hurston, who's also a contemporary of hers, who oh, was yeah. born in Alabama herself uh, before they moved to Florida, so that her childhood that she does write more extensively about um, as a young girl also um, gave me some idea in terms of how to fictionalize that part of her story. But in terms of fiction, you also have to think about, or at least I do, um, what the 21st century reader is going to be able to take in. Oh, good point. Um, and Lowe had many more shops than what I had. She was always going in and out of the shop because of the financial 
situations. And I could not possibly have included all of those shops and all of those relationships. Right. So in terms of that was a, a question of stripping and compositing in order to make that narrative a little more straightforward, a little cleaner, they said, for uh, an audience that I didn't want to get lost, you know, in terms of, you know, yeah, right? which I guess that she continued to persist to have that shop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So That's stuff like that. Point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk too about process because I find a lot of people ask on these webinars about the writing process. And I actually, Libby, I have your book here because it's one of my faves for process. Um, so, I, you know, in writing, as we all know, there's answers versus plotters. Um, Libby's even written a book about it that I highly recommend. Um, so, what's your process? Are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Are you somewhere in between? I'd love to hear. Who, me? Anyone. Anyone jumping? I, I think I know what yours is. <laughs> you know, I, I mostly plot stuff out, but not always. And The Prophet's Wife was one where I did not follow the take off your pants outline. I just kind of went where the history directed with that one. But oh, wow. I, I do it. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. I can advance a little bit. So, like, even to say in terms of writing by our own design, I, that, that prologue, which is the first thing I wrote, was just like me pantsing, just thinking about who she was and what she might have been thinking about before she died. So, and then I plot. So, I see. Okay. Planter. 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 <laughs> I, yeah, I'm kind of, I, so I think of it as like a mapper and an explorer, people who like to have the guide, the guideposts as they go and the people who like to explore with, you know, um, I, I am ideally in my mind a pure plotter and I never really am like that's not the reality of it I'd love to be that type of person like I like having a vision of the book and I feel like around the 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 quarter point mark I really feel more comfortable if I know the have a big vision for the book and but then like you know I'm starting a contemporary women's fiction project and it's all pantsing. It is like, I have no idea what's yeah. happening in the next chapter. And I mean, I had just, I'm at the halfway mark and just had this wonderful aha moment. It's like, I get what this book is about now. I mean, I knew what some of the big themes were, but I, yeah. I kind of, you know, got more of a direction, which was exciting. Um, and that's really fun. But I, tr I definitely like to have the structure of the book in my head. But I never am stubborn about it. I, I like to leave myself room for organic discovery, especially with characters. Like Clara in uh, The School for German Brides is kind of the bridge character between the two narratives, um, Tilda and Hannah. And she happened completely out of the blue. And um, like she just came up, oh, she's Hannah's classmate at school. And then I knew that Tilda was going to be giving sewing lessons. I'm like, it's still the same girl. This is going to be great. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, exactly. It was great because it, it's like, it's one of those discoveries. And it's funny how sometimes they happen really late. She was like pretty early, but it's like, how could I have done this without it? What was I thinking? You know? It's like, yeah, it's like almost like I did it on purpose. And um, it's nice when that happens. Excellent. Um, so I have a couple more questions. And then if anyone in the audience has questions, you can put them in the chat or you can put them in the Q&A and I can field questions from the audience after my last couple questions. Um, th this is another one. Um, 
about about the history. I, I in my first novel, I, I like cringe because I look back on it and I I feel like I did a lot of info dumps about like, and I didn't know how to balance like the story because it's always about the story with like all this like really interesting stuff about pottery that I thought was interesting but really didn't move it the story was, along. I loved it. So. <laughs> oh, thank you, Piper. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, oh, I blush when I think about it. Oh my so, God, this is awesome. <laughs> thank you. Take me away. <laughs> so I'm curious, like, how do you, like, I, we're all, like, history nerds. We all love the details. But how do you, like, strike that chord, right? Like, is, do you, like, learn over time? Like, I feel like I've, I've gotten a little bit better at it, at it now. But, like, how do you strike the chord between, like, adding enough historical detail so you immerse the, the reader, but not too much that the reader's like, oh, I'm going to close the book. Like, do you have any tips on that? I think of it like garlic when I'm cooking. <laughs> as in, uh, oh, that's perfect. Metaphors. I use a lot of food metaphors. I apologize. But it's like garlic. You love to get a little bit. If you're some, you don't want to eat a, get a whole clove when you're eating, right? You like Ooh, to have yeah. a little bit. And so I like to sprinkle it in like I would garlic because otherwise it's overpowering. And I, you know, I, I try to do it deftly, but it's the same with so many other things like physical descriptions. We get so tired of the laundry list of, oh, he was a middling height and had brown hair that was given to curl and, you know, and that sort of thing. We want to avoid the laundry list when we're, we got to think of creative ways to describe it. So if you give these cool little nitpick, uh, little details and you do it in one sentence or one phrase fragments and sprinkle it throughout a chapter rather than a paragraph of exposition, because yes. we're none of us Victor Hugo. We don't get to, have, I mean, <laughs> our editors were all with Tessa. She will not let us go on a hundred page rant about Waterloo in the middle of Les Miserables. She just right. won't let it happen. So you try to, uh, you know, to think of it in smaller chunks and to weave it in in small amounts. I think that's the best way to do it. Excellent. I like the garlic analogy too. Excellent. <laughs> and I, like her, but I love garlic. So. <laughs> Me too. I, yeah. <laughs> I go overboard with garlic. <laughs> I like it finely minced. Yes. 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 <laughs> I think it. I think it matters. It's a decision about whether or not you're in third person or first person. And with first person, you uh, always sure. have to be aware of this stuff in terms of what the character is going to say that is legitimate and authentic and whatnot, which I think helps to curb potential info dumps. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a question of how do how might you make something like. Uh, a scene active that the person would be in that yeah. would, you know, I don't want to go cliche but show it rather than tell it I yeah. also may have remarked about um the grocery store scene in terms of how when she had to go to the grocery store or the general store what that would be like at that time period and uh you know to sort of have that acted out so that people could see just the kind of situation that Anlo was coming from in terms of that. So that's how I try to think of it. Um, yeah. I think Amy, honestly, probably has a hard job in terms of engaging, in terms of it being third person because you be Yeah, I like, I write in first person as well. I think I, it, my writing just lends itself to it. I'd write a novella in third person. It felt like I was learning how to write all over again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree with everything Piper and Amy said on the subject. I would just add that I think um, 
a lot of it does kind of come from experience, both as a writer and as a reader. I think the more you read and the more you practice yeah. your own writing, you'll just mm-hmm. kind of develop a feel for it eventually where you can mm-hmm. sort of start to feel that like, maybe you're going a little overboard. Maybe this mm-hmm. doesn't need to be here. Or conversely, like maybe this is a good spot to like sprinkle in a little bit of garlic right there. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know. I was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, that, that's exactly right. I talked, I was talking at a, co- a conference the other day and I likened it to like, um, like an ear for music. Like you start to feel like you're stronger with that, you know, over time. Yeah. 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 Um, on that note, um, this is another writing question. Um, what is your best advice for new writers? for people who are trying to write their first manuscript or just finish the first manuscript or like, what is your best advice? I think when you're still pretty new to it, like in your first, like one to three books or like, or before you have your books published, or if you're self-publishing before you have your books out there into the world, um, I think you just need to <laughs> not, not worry about the market just write what you really feel drawn to write. Cause it, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of hard work and a lot of like juggling new skills to complete a book. And if you're also worried that it's not going to be marketable, you're just, you're going to get freaked out and never finish it. And, and you, you have to have that something driving you to keep going when it gets tough. Cause it does get tough. Like 20% of the way through every single book I write, except for one, I hate the book. <laughs> I hate it. Like, yeah. Why am I doing this? This is the best book I've ever written. I want to throw every it every book. Every book. Oh my God, this is direct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like twelve thousand words. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough, man. You hit a wall. Yeah. And you have to have something that will push you through that. So you have to really care about the story and not be like, "Well, this will sell." You know? Yeah. 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 I think you know. I think that, you know, your first, first manuscript or as you're, you know, before you've, you've made, you know, you've entered into the industry, like you've crossed the threshold to where you're agented or you have a book deal or you're, you're self-publishing, whatever. Um, I think it's important to, um, I mean, also give yourself a lot of grace because it's a hard thing, but I think it's important to, 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 to think about your writing process objectively and think about, you know, if you are the type of person who can get up at 5am, get a thousand words in and tootle off to your day job and be great. That's great. Do that. Those are your golden hours. But if you get up at 5am and stare at a screen for an hour and a half and get nothing done, then that is not a good use of your time. But, you know, again, if you get up and go off to work and you get home and all you want to do is watch Netflix and eat pizza, (laughs) then you need to get up earlier and get your words in and, you know, get them in during your lunch hour or whatever, because especially early on in the process, most of us are juggling an awful lot. And even the people who are writing full time have extra stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know of a single writer that I know personally who isn't, you know, juggling, you know, uh, other, you know, the, and you know, if they are writing completely full-time is because they've got a, hus- a spouse with health insurance, this, that, and the other thing. It's just the reality of it. And if you go with the expectation that you are not going to be uber wealthy, but you have a chance of, you know, actually having some success, I think it's a healthier mindset to go in with, but learn how you work and be, you know, juggle your life around to make to fit your writing and make it a priority yes. nobody's going to come around and give you a little badge like a sheriff's badge that says writer 
No. And say, you've got permission to write a book. I, I mean, I felt that it took me 10 years to write Promise to the Crown because I felt like, well, why am I spending my time doing this? At least if I'm sitting playing video games with my then husband, I mean, I'm spending time with him. That's a, that's a value. But me sitting here writing a book, it's like intellectual, you know, it's just flaff. What am I doing? And, um, you know, and that, it's a stupid mindset. It really is because if you want to write a book, you have to have the, uh, I think the other, I guess the biggest piece of advice is start what you, or finish what you start. Yeah. Finish yeah. projects. I mean, yes. I mean, there are times when, you know, I mean, when you realize this is absolutely going nowhere, if it's better for you to, to can it, sure, but know that we all hit a wall with every project and that, you know, it's, you got to push through it and that's part of the job and it's a hard part of the job, but you have to do it. Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah. But yeah. finish what you start. Totally agree. I guess I'm like building on what um, Amy and Libby said. Um, I think sometimes what people see is that they see all of the great debut projects that are announced and it's the only book the person's ever written and they got a six or seven figure deal of it. And that's not typical. Right. And it, like you said, it took you 10 years to write your first novel, but then that you cut down on that because I think part of that is you realize is that the more that you do it, the more you're able to push through that walls. And so I think I, what I've seen too is that people who have um, an excessive connection to that first thing, like that's going to be the only book. And if that doesn't sell, then, you know, the hell with the rest or whatever. And you can't be like that about it. Just let it go and move on to the next thing. Um, yeah. In terms of that. And some people are like that. Yeah, I still not published. They're still out there. Not the work's not out there yeah. because yeah. I think it's this one book. Yeah, and if that, you finish your book and it doesn't sell, trunk it and move yeah, on to the next on. one. Yeah, I mean, because, and I've yeah. seen it. It's sad. You know, you write a book that's beautiful and your friends all love it. They say it's beautiful. Even mm -hmm. writer friends. Mm -hmm. sometimes you've got to trunk it and move on and it sucks it does it, it really, really does. sucks but that's important but to know I, one time I finished I put the end and then I just went on to the next book and next moment I was like oh, okay this is cool. what you do it, it does <laughs> suck you have to trunk something but here's the thing if it's just not the right market right now for that book and you can't sell it because no one's interested right now, in like yeah. two or three years, they might be. And you can mm -hmm. be the first person, like if someone is like, oh, uh, novels about Finnish uh, statesmen are really hot right now. You can be like, I have one, bam. And I've got a story, guys. I've got a lot of story. True. Yeah, so I, like after Across the Winding River, I started playing with it. I mean, it was a tumultuous time for lots of reasons, but I was playing with like, oh, well, Deb and Abby said, I want to write. You know, I talked to my editor at Lake Union and I said, Chris, what's going on? Like, I, I want to talk to you about ideas. And he said, first, and I had the plot for Ger German Brides was going to be what I pitched. And he's like, no World War One or World War II. Mm -hmm. Before I even opened my, my mouth, mm -hmm. I had three World War II wow. pitches ready to go out to go out and i'm like okay great i'm ready i'm ready to move on the bubble is burst huzzah and i pitched him a, a guild he said i want you to do gilded age or roaring 20s i pitched him a gilded age book he's like yeah downton abbey's really not selling and it's like well downton abbey isn't gilded age but cool anyway, <laughs> i pitch it we take it wide and i start working on um actually it was the pr the pitch for 
a bakery in Paris, which is my work in progress. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working, I, I, I start sending out the, you know, the, my Gilded Age book and, uh, you know, limited. And they're like, yeah, maybe not right now. I'm like, eh, okay. So I shelved that and I, and I start working on the Paris bakery book. And, but one of the editors said, hey, what else is Amy working on? We, we love her voice and everything. And they said, we want something, you know, really high action World War II. And I pitched them the idea that had been in my back pocket for like Union, German Brides. And they said, we want that tomorrow. And they took it in like mm -hmm. four weeks. And, it was great. <laughs> and then the next project they took was Paris Bakery. And the Gilded Age book is now a novella. So all of those ideas found homes, mm -hmm. all of them. Uh, so, you know, even if it's the book of your heart, like my Paris Bakery book, love that book. But it had to wait for me to write German Brides, and it was yeah. fine. It was yeah. Fine. yeah, yeah. No, this is all such excellent advice. And, I, you know, to, to add to Piper's point about, like, you see all these success stories and the six mm -hmm. figures and the book, and you're like, uh, but I always say, like, I think about it as, like, an iceberg. And, like, mm -hmm. you always see, like, the tip above right. the water with a writer mm -hmm. and a writer's mm -hmm. success. But underneath is, like, rejections and tears and bitterness. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, yeah. it's just really hard. And people don't see all, like, the 10 years. Like, it took me 10 years for my first novel. Like, people don't see the blood, sweat, and tears underneath the surface. Yeah. So this is all such good advice. And, and actually, Amy, this leaves me, this is my last kind of multi-part question for you guys and then I'll jump into some great questions from the audience um what are you working on now how can people best stay in touch with you and do you do virtual book clubs if you could all three and start so Amy you started talking about the Paris Bakery so why don't we start with you yes I just turned in my manuscript it's called the bakery in Paris it's a dual oh, timeline with um the Paris Commune and the seizure of Paris in 1870-1871 think kind of lay Miz, but a little later and post-war, um, uh, so like reconstruction of Paris after the war. So it's like Les Mis meets Chocolat. And awesome. um, I just turned That's it in, waiting so cool. for edits. And I love writing that book. I'm also working on contemporary women's fiction um, that's still to be titled about Provence. It's coming out later next year. Very exciting. Um, get a hold of me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. It's um, If you search for Amy K. Runyon, I should show up. It's at bookishamy on Instagram. Um, the uh, Amy K. Runyon on Instagram is broken. And I love doing um, virtual book clubs anytime you want. If you go to my website, www.amykrunyon.com, there's a form you can fill out and I will gladly join you. Excellent. All right. And so Libby, how about you? And then we'll, we'll round out since this, since this is officially to, to launch Piper. Well, Piper, you can go last. So. <laughs> Um, well, uh, speaking of books that had to be trunked because the time was not right, <laughs> I've, I've been working on a novel about Van Gogh and um, my agent took it out and tried to tempt all the publishers with it. And they were all like, nah. <laughs> so she was like, what do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I've got like 40,000 words written. I'm just going to trunk it for now. And then we'll just wait till the market shifts and then I'll bring it back out. So I was working on a novel about Van Gogh. I just stopped and I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I have a couple of ideas. So I'm going to play around with them a little I bit. I that one idea you were talking Amy. about though. I hope you're doing that. Yeah, I, I did too. Yeah. Let's well, there's that, that one that, <laughs> well, I, I am working on one that it sounds like Lake Union's going to buy, but we don't have a contract yet. That's about oh. um, two women in the 1930s who are become train hobos. <laughs> So, love it. I love that. Yeah. Awesome. 
so that's, that's probably, what I'm that's probably going to be my my next year's Olivia Hawker book, but the contract's not officially signed yet. But as for works in progress, I don't know. Nah. Um, where can people? I, I, yes, I do virtual book clubs. Just email me and ask um, hawkerbooks.com or libbygrant.com. They're both my website. They both have my contact info. And um, you can find me on Instagram at Libby Hawker. And it's, I don't talk about books a lot there. It's mostly just pictures of my garden. So I hope you like flowers. <laughs> Who does it? Yeah, mine's like lots of hiking pictures. Yeah. Mine's of my dog. Oh, my <laughs> All right, Piper, launch day tomorrow. Tell us, tell us everything. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, um, please. No. I, um, okay, yeah. Um, I'm working on my next book, which is due in September 1st, Julia Morrow, oh, wow. hopefully for next fall, called American Daughters, which is about the oh, right. friendship between the daughter of Booker T. Washington and the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt. So people know about um, the dinner the very famous dinner in 1901 that Booker and Theodore had um, when Theodore was newly president after McKinley was assassinated. He invites Booker T. Washington to come into dinner and it was a big uproar because he was the first black man to have dinner at the White House. Um, but their two daughters, their two rebellious teenage daughters who have a lot in common, managed to become friends over this uh, first half of the 20th century so that's what American Daughters is about. Excellent. Um, I am at Piper Hugley on Twitter, uh, H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. My website where you could contact me to most certainly have virtual book clubs and professors so I'm deeply into that kind of thing, um, which is piperhugley.com. Um, Facebook at Piper G. Hugley and I'm learning Instagram, which is why I'm still talking about my books, Piper underscore Hugley. Excellent. Excellent. Yay. So, okay. So we have some questions. I don't like to keep people too much longer. I, this is so awesome. Every, there's so many nice comments in the comments, by the way, ladies, I hope you get to see those. Um, so this one from Robin Goldstein, Piper referenced an upcoming Anne Lowe exhibit in Delaware next spring that will be at the Winter Her Museum in, near Wilmington. Has she been contacted to help curate the exhibit and will you be giving any lectures there? I'm hoping that I'll be giving lecture. I am not going to be curating, though. The Elizabeth Way, who is another fashion scholar, is co-curating that. And it's going to be um, next fall in 2023. So, Excellent. yeah, I'm hoping they'll have me at some point here. Excellent. Um, let's see. Oh, Christine Mott is she, – she, Christine, I don't think you've missed a webinar. You're amazing. And her question is, I'm always fascinated to know if your book title changed from your original title and also if you have input into your covers. Um, this book I, I no title forever. I'm sorry, Libby. I was going to say it had no title. They had to title it. <laughs> and it took nine times for the cover to come around. Oh, wow. Great cover, though. It was worth waiting. It is perfect. Love yeah, love it. And the cover is amazing. I'm sorry. I don't, my, my arc is the plain blue. You know, I can't show up. <laughs> there you go. go. Look All at right. that. Look yeah. at that. Um, uh, the, the original title for the School for German Brides, which um, is a decent title, even though it's a little bit misleading since most of the book is not the bride school. Um, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Um, the, it, the original title was A Ring of Iron, which I really liked. Um, but they, the School for German Brides definitely is intriguing and people it got people invested. The cover I definitely had some involvement in. 
Um, and you know, basically this was one of this, the, this concept was one of two that we started with. And then we just made tweaks to this one after we went with this one. Um, the other one looked a little bit too Bletchley Park. Um, but I really liked it, but it did look a little bit Bletchley Park. Um, I thought this one didn't have the creep factor I wanted, but I did have some, uh, some inputs. Yeah. I love it too. How are you um, looking? I agreed under duress to change the title to The Prophet's Wife. And I did that because I wanted to keep some things in the book that my editor also was pushing to remove. So I was like, mm, I'm going to give on this so I can keep the stuff <laughs> that I want to keep in the book. Um, but I do, I, I make sure, I actually make sure it's in my contracts that I have input on my covers. It's, get, it's becoming more and more common that authors have input on their covers, which is great. But just as that added layer of security, I make sure that's in my contracts because it is very important to a book success. It really yes. is. My first two covers, I basically for my first cover, I and I went to my mailbox and there was 50 printed cover flats and of of this cover. And they said with a note from my editor saying on a post-it note saying surprise. And, and no say. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they re, they recovered the Kindle version of it and it's better, but it kind of looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting and it's it, it doesn't <laughs> oh, no. it doesn't convey what's happening in the book and that's what a cover really needs to do. Yeah. And so I really think that it is important that um, authors do get input as and it's also important that authors aren't too diva-ish about it, but that they, you know, because designers, I'm not a designer, but I certainly know what my story is about. So mm -hmm. it's good that everybody has a dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Um, oh, Amy, this is an interesting question from Judy Bruce. Wondering if you've heard of Deborah Cadbury's book, The School That Escapes the Nazis. It was featured in the Wall Street Journal today. So oh, to check that out. No. I will have to check that out, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, let me see if there, I've missed anything. Just a lot of really like superb, can't wait to read all your books. I don't have a question, but boy, am I loving this whole discussion. I can't write, I can't write, this is Debbie McBride. I can't write worth beans, but ideas, have ideas, but writing expression is simply not more my forte. I'm like, uh, you could give it a try, Debbie. And um, yeah, just so, so many great. Readers are very important, Debbie. So. They are very important. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I, I shout out to Marsha and Marsha Dusting and Mandy Eisenbaum. Mandy says that I'm simply awed by all of you. This has been another great webinar. Thank you so much. Mandy always shows up too. Thank you. Aww. And um, I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much, ladies. This was amazing. And um, it will be recorded for people who missed tonight. So I'll send it out and um, it'll be on a podcast version as well. Um, but happy launch eve, Piper. Cheers. Thank you so much for waiting for me. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, we did it. Yeah. All right. I'm so glad you got here. Yeah, so glad. So glad. All right, everyone have a great night. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.